Uh, today's reading is from Luke chapter 10, uh, starting at verse 25, and you can find that on page 1579 of the Church Bibles. So starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Well, thanks very much, Sarah, and uh, good morning, everyone. My name's Cam Maxwell, if we haven't met. I'm a campus pastor here at, at Tonsley. Uh, and uh, you'll see on your leaflets, as Kelly already said, Matt Lehman was due to uh, finish our series in Isaiah this morning. I actually uh, saw Matt uh, Friday morning uh, as he was attempting to put his thoughts on paper, and it wasn't going particularly well. He wasn't. I was thinking, oh, this could be interesting. I'll see how we go as we get to Sunday. I got a call from Matt uh, later that day, just after lunchtime or thereabouts, saying, yeah, we're going to have to uh, delay that sermon. He didn't think he'd get across the line uh, for, this, uh, for us this Sunday morning. Uh, so it'd be good to keep Matt in your prayers as he's uh, still recovering from uh, some sickness there. Um, now, Friday afternoon, I was thinking, oh, what do I do? It usually takes me a bit longer than that to prepare a sermon uh, from scratch. Uh, I thought it'd be good for all of us to just, uh, instead of trying to finish a series on Isaiah 65, uh, let Matt do that one. And I've just pulled an old sermon out of my drawer that uh, I have preached before. Uh, some of you, uh, if you remember from uh, Colonel Light Gardens back in 2019, you might have been there when I preached this sermon. The thing is, though, that was before a pandemic. I can't remember what I said. And even if you were there, I doubt you'd remember what I said. Uh, So it feels like it's as good as new for all of us, right? Um, uh, And look, I didn't have any particular reason for picking this passage other than it's one that's uh, well-loved and uh, I think a good one to get our head straight into uh, without too much a run-up. Please keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 10. There's a bit to look at as we go through, I think, uh, one of the most famous and well-loved stories of the Bible. Uh, I think even Australians uh, who are not that fond of uh, Christianity seem to like this story. I think it probably would be one of the most popular uh, stories in Australia uh, from the Bible. Uh, partly, I think, perhaps because uh, the Good Samaritan makes the, uh, the religious experts look a bit like hypocrites, a bit silly. Uh, and yeah, for the cynic, uh, it confirms what they think about uh, yeah, pastors and priests. Uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, though, I think it does capture what a lot of Australians really like, doesn't it? 
Uh, our media rightly celebrate people who courageously jump in to help a stranger. Uh, they labelled the Good Samaritan in, in all kinds of stories we see uh, in our press. We love bravery, kindness, uh, selflessness. Um, there is a bit of a problem, though. Um, this is not just a random story Jesus told with, with a nice moral. It has a, uh, a context we need to really appreciate to understand uh, what's going on. See, if this was a simple story about a nice man, uh, my job this morning would be very easy. Uh, I'll just explain a couple of things in the parable, you know, what a Samaritan is. Uh, then I'd give us a few examples about how we can go and do likewise and be good. Um, I reckon I could do that in about five minutes and we could go home early. Um, that would be fine, except that we'd be missing what Jesus is doing by telling this parable. To understand why Jesus is telling this brilliant parable and what it means for us, we need to step back a little bit. Uh, we need to see how it fits into the discussion he's having uh, with a re- religious expert. And before we do that, we also um, need to step back in to see, and see how it fits into Luke's uh, wider thinking as he gives us the story of Jesus. Um, just before the section we read, back in Luke 10 from verse 15, uh, Jesus has been explaining uh, to his disciples why people reject him. Uh, it's a pretty key uh, idea to try and get your head around. Why do people reject Jesus? Uh, Jesus has explained in the previous section, it's pride. Uh, pride usually gets in the way of people accepting the good news about Jesus. Luke, uh, our author, has been exploring this in different ways all through his book, actually. Uh, in fact, it's all through the Bible. We see it time and time again. It's the humble, it's those who know they need help that find joy. They find real hope and they are given wisdom by God to live in his world. In contrast, those who think they have it all together, those who think they don't need any help, those who are proud, they're the ones that miss out on the blessings of God and eternal glories. Uh, So again, if you have your Bibles open there, just have a look back at Luke 10 uh, in verse 21. It's about halfway through the verse in the previous passage. Uh, Luke 10, about halfway through verse 21. uh, Jesus is saying that God hides the truth from those who are wise and learned in their own eyes and reveals that truth, basically, to silly little kids. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it, how God operates? It's because the wise and learned think they don't need Jesus or the salvation he offers. And so as we now get to verse 25, uh, the passage Sarah read for us, we have now an expert in the law, someone who is, by all definitions, wise and learned. And so the whole discussion we're looking at today is a case study in what Jesus has just said in the previous section about someone who's wise and learned. They're demonstrating, uh, Luke is demonstrating this conversation Jesus has with this man, how clueless even the most brilliant people can be. I think even better, we get to see the way that Jesus undercuts our own pride and redirects the way we think about ourselves. And most of all, shows us how desperately we all need his help. Now, I should just say, this expert in the law, uh, when we read that through the New Testament, it's usually uh, referring to uh, the law God gave to Moses. So it's a religious law, Jewish religious law. Um, and he stands up here, doesn't he? That, uh, he stands up publicly to test Jesus. Now, I should say that never really goes uh, very well for people who don't uh, do that with humility. Uh, but this expert at least asks the question that matters, doesn't he? It's not silly trivia he's trying to test Jesus with. He wants to see if Jesus knows the answer to the all-important question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, surely that or questions like it are the most important sort of questions we can ask. Uh, perhaps some of us are here are desperate to know, with all humility, the answer to that very question. What must we do to inherit eternal life? Because if eternal life is really on the line, we, we wouldn't want to be sort of vague, would we? We wouldn't want to guess uh, how to get it. 
it's too much at stake. We could get, get it wrong, couldn't we? There's nothing more important than this question. But here it doesn't seem to be a genuine question, does it? It's a good question, but it's not genuine. This expert isn't asking to find the answer. He's asking to test Jesus. It seems as if he already thinks he knows the answer and he just wants to see if Jesus will be on his side and agree with him. Perhaps he even wants to embarrass Jesus to, to you know, get some sort of street cred from the other legal scholars in his department. You know, Jesus, this new rabbi, everyone's raving about, I put him in his place. Now, Jesus could have just told him, uh, as he asked this question, Jesus could have responded and just told him what we've already seen all throughout Luke. The answer to this question Jesus keeps giving is, the only way for sins to be forgiven, the only way to have eternal life and peace with God, is Jesus himself. Trusting Jesus with our life is the only way to have eternal life. Luke has already made that very clear. Jesus has made that very clear in previous chapters. Jesus could have just said, look, come follow me and you'll have eternal life. He doesn't say that. Throughout Luke, time and time again, that's what Jesus says to the humble person. And so for this expert, who's clearly lacking humility, Jesus takes a different approach. And perhaps it's to break through his pride. I think it's one of my favourite things about how Jesus deals with people attacking him and testing him. He nearly always answers someone's hostile question with a question. It's kind of the first rule of testing Jesus. I'd be very careful. He's got a sort of a black belt in conversation judo. He'll, he'll use your question and flip it around on you. Uh, so be careful. Now, this expert in the law, he, he wants to test Jesus. He quickly becomes the one being tested as Jesus does this. He's not being tested on his knowledge of the law, actually. He's getting tested on something far more important. He's getting tested on the issues of his heart. So what must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. Verse 26, Jesus responds, you're the expert in the law, you tell me. This expert turns out he's actually pretty good at his job. He understands that the many laws in Scripture all flow uh, seemingly from these two commands, these two great commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments. And Jesus affirms these are the two greatest commandments. Verse 28, he says, yes, you have actually answered correctly. Now, let's just stop there for a second. That actually sounds pretty easy at one level, doesn't it? On the surface, if we want eternal life, all we have to do is keep two commands. Don't worry about ten, just two. Uh, That sounds pretty easy. Uh, Until you think about what they're actually commanding us to do. To love wholeheartedly and genuinely. If that's what we have to do to receive eternal life, well... What should the expert in the law say at this point, if he was humble? Jesus, to, to love the law with all my heart? Do, do you mean all the time? Because if that's the case, Jesus, I'm worried. If that's what it takes to have eternal life, look, Jesus, I've tried to do this, but I don't think I can honestly say I do love God with all my heart. Not completely. My, my heart desires things that I know God doesn't like, and I do that pretty much every day. And my mind, look... You don't, know, you don't want to know some of the thoughts I have. I'd be ashamed to uh, voice some of the things I think out loud. I mentally assassinate people. I, I grumble. I complain. I, I fail to thank God for the good things he's given me. And love my neighbor. Well, I struggle to love my own family sometimes. I think about how, how grumpy I am when I get home from the legal studies department and I'm just grumpy and short with my wife and my kids after a stressful day. 
I've even sometimes neglected my parents in their old age. I, I haven't even loved my family, let alone my neighbour like myself. Jesus, please tell me I'm doing my best and that's good enough. Because I haven't done this. I haven't loved God with my whole life. I haven't loved my neighbour, not even close to how I love myself. I think the humble person at this point says, Jesus, what hope do I have? I can't do this. How can I have eternal life? I think that's what the humble person would say at this point, and we've seen that throughout Luke. That's exactly what they say, or more, something like that. There's a desperation that people have when they know they do not deserve eternal life. They know, we know, we haven't kept the law, not even close. If you'd like to um, do a bit more reading during the week, I'd encourage you to have a look at Luke chapter 7. Uh, There's a great example of that, uh, if you're taking notes. Have a look at Luke chapter 7. You'll see something uh, extraordinary there about someone who realises how much they have been forgiven. But this expert, uh, with his wisdom and his learning, he seems to think that what he has just said is achievable. He thinks he can actually do it. Now, it seems to me he's a good expert in the law. I don't think it's because he's misunderstood the law. I think the reason he thinks he can do it is because he's being generous in his own self-assessment. As he looks at the law, you know, love the Lord, the God, love the Lord with everything you have, love your neighbour as much as you love yourself, and he seems to think. I'm doing pretty well at that. I think the reason he's being generous with his self-assessment is that I think most of us are generous when we assess ourselves so often. See, if we get to set the standards by what we mean by, you know, how to love someone, of course we get to live up to that standard if we set it. If we're the ones who define who my neighbour is, well, of course we'll live up to that. I'll succeed at loving the person I want to succeed. That's easy. And so as verse, we get to verse 29, he asks, well, who is my neighbour? Again, we're told here by Luke, it's not a genuine question. He's trying to justify himself, and it exposes his problem completely. He doesn't see himself sitting under God's law. If he did, uh, he'd, he'd know, he would know, like all of us, that he's in trouble. It seems he sees himself sitting above God's law. He's the wise expert who can explain away his need to actually love God. He can justify all his actions. If he uses the right kind of wordplay, if he can define things just very carefully, if he's, he's smart enough to intentionally twist the meaning of the law to suit himself, and he's proud enough to stand before Jesus and do just that. Perhaps we can identify uh, with some of these traits. The thing is, this just doesn't fly with Jesus here, does it? Uh, we, we can't set ourselves a low bar to get over when it comes to God's judgment. And I think that's a real challenge for everyone. Uh, most of us assume that we probably would live up to God's standards, actually. Uh, most Australians would have the assumption that, yeah, I'm a good bloke, God must like me. Or we assume that just trying to live up to God's standards is good enough, close enough is good enough. We think God would look at our lives and say, well, it's not perfect, but no one is, that's fine. On balance, I've done more, than good, more good than bad. I've even been a good Samaritan myself once or twice. I helped a stranger return their shopping trolley to the, uh, in the car park. Not bad, right? I have a sponsored child, I've done my best to be kind to others, I I look after my family, I even recycle carefully. Surely God will let me into heaven. I think it's very tempting, like this expert in the law, to give ourselves a pass mark, taking the very Aussie approach that she'll be right. The problem is, time and time again we see in Scripture that we are not the judge. We don't get to judge ourselves by our own standards, we get judged by God's standards. 
See, if we didn't get to judge ourselves, how would that be an unbiased, impartial judgment? If I can put it this way, if that was the case, if Hitler got to judge himself, would there be any justice in our world? Our problem is that we assess ourselves using the wrong standards. We have a bar that's far too low to get over, usually. But when we come to Judgment Day, on the very brink of eternal life, what will be good enough? That's what the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about. Jesus aims this parable fair and square, challenging the expert's standards in how good he has to be. If we're trying to be good enough to receive eternal life, if this is the route we want to try and take to just obey these two laws... We need to be aware this parable sets the standards that are required of us. Actually, it's, it's, it's far harder, isn't it, when you think about it? This is just narrowing in on one part of one commandment, who our neighbour is. I'd say it's probably even harder, I think, to uh, love the Lord uh, with all our hearts. Well, let's just focus on uh, what Jesus focuses on, though. How much do we need to love our neighbour to receive eternal life? What do we need to do? Here's a standard Jesus sets, uh, the standard of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is saying, this is what it takes. This is where you need to be at to give yourself a pass mark. So let's have a look at the parable. It starts with a man taking a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. He he gets violently mugged, and they take his clothes, which to me sounds like a very odd thing for muggers to do. Uh, I don't know why they do that. Maybe he was a a snappy dresser or something. Uh, But they leave him beaten. Uh, He's half dead, and so therefore as good as dead. A priest comes along, uh, exactly the kind of person you would hope would be uh, moral uh, and obedient to God's laws. We're not told why he avoids the man. Uh, Maybe he doesn't want to get his hands dirty and make himself ceremonially unclean. It would mean he'd get sent home from his day's work at the temple. Maybe he's just in a hurry. Uh, Whatever it is, he crosses to the other side of the road, out of sight, out of mind, gets on with his day. Then a Levite comes along. Um, That's also someone who is supposed to model what obedience to God's law should look like. Uh, Levites were involved in running uh, the temple. They should know the law, and they should be living out the law. They're at the heart of the religious system God had given Israel. He, too, crosses to the other side. Head down, don't think about it, get on with the day. Clearly, not a picture of neighbourly love, is it? Before we pass judgment on these two uh, too quickly, just put yourself in their shoes for a moment. If you were walking through a territory that was well known to be infested with violent robbers, like this area was, If you came across evidence that there were violent bandits somewhere nearby, would you stay around to help? Put yourself in very real danger to do that. Uh, Maybe you would. How about uh, if you were running late for a very important meeting at work? Uh, Maybe a job interview, the job you desperately need. For the uni students, maybe you're running very late for an exam. Or uh, to preach a sermon on a Sunday morning. You're running late... And you see someone on the footpath, or on a bench, or on a bus stop. Maybe they're sleeping, maybe they're drunk, but maybe they have been beaten and are being, have been left uh, to die. Would we stop and check in on them? And surely there are more people around, there will be someone coming along shortly, someone with more time than me. Maybe we would stop and help. I hope we would, I hope I would. But I just raise that, I think we can sympathise at least a little bit uh, with these first two characters, with the priest and Levi. It's possibly dangerous, and what's required of them is costly. But I think what comes next is the real shocking part of this story. When we hear the word Samaritan, I think we're kind of conditioned by this very story to think, oh, the good person, the hero, a good Samaritan. 
But to Jesus' first listeners who are Jewish, they hear Samaritan, that word for them means enemy or scum, villain almost. Even worse than, say, Victorian. Welcome to all our visitors from Victoria, by the way. Great to have you with us. See, Samaria, uh, where Samaritans were from, was once part of Israel, uh, but had been settled by the Babylonians and conquered. And later, Alexander the Great uh, moved new people in there. They sort of settled and colonized the area. They mixed and they intermarried. And so Jewish people considered, roughly speaking, Samaritans to be sort of half-castes, putting it bluntly. In their eyes, they were ethnically contaminated and not really part of God's people, not properly. And to make it even worse, uh, there was a rival temple in Samaria. And so not only were they not true Jews, they also were kind of heretics as well. It's not too much of a stretch to say that Samaritan Jews were basically enemies. So Jesus, who's Jewish and is talking to a Jewish crowd and to a Jewish expert in the Jewish law, is telling a story where the Jewish priests are kind of the villains and a Samaritan is the hero. It's pretty scandalous, isn't it, when you sort of uh, think through those kind of things. The Samaritan stops to care for someone who is basically their enemy. It's a pretty radical thing to do. If we're comparing ourselves to this Samaritan, this is not you or I, you or I helping out a sort of random stranger here in Tonsley, someone who's a neighbour to us. This is more like you stopping to save the life of a Nazi. Well, the, the parable of the good Nazi doesn't really uh, ring quite right, does it? But that is the shock in the story. That's kind of what Jesus is doing. The Samaritan took pity on him. He had compassion for him. If you have a look at verse 34 onwards, you see every detail of the story keeps adding to how kind and generous this Samaritan is to someone who probably hates him. He starts off with a first century first aid, uh, olive oil and bandages and wine. And then he gets this guy and he lets him sort of bleed all over his car, or you know, his donkey, but same thing. He takes him to an inn. He stays the night with him, caring for him. Now, for me, like giving first aid, I get that. Taking him to a civilization, somewhere where he can get help, I get that. But staying all night to care for him, that's certainly going above and beyond what we'd consider our normal civic duty, isn't it? But it keeps going. He pays for this man's care as well. And it seems like a good amount, hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And then, to top it all off, the Samaritan says to the innkeeper, look after him, and look, here's a blank check for all your expenses. All of this for a guy who probably hates him. Now, this is the standard. This is what's required uh, for us to love our neighbour if we want to live this way to receive eternal life, if we're going to earn our way there. This is what it takes, Jesus says. This is the standard. It's not a standard you set for yourself. This is the highest possible standard to get over. Now, even if we think we can do this, and I think maybe we could, how often? Every single time you come across someone in need, for how many people? How many, how many times do you fail this standard? Being this selfless uh, in every situation feels like a very tall order. But see, this parable is not simply a nice story with a good moral. It seems to me the point here is we're not like this. Not consistently. At least I know I'm not. I think the story helps us see what Jesus is doing is showing us that our standards are not the same as God's. This is the standard. And this is a standard we are nowhere near as good as we think we are. The problem is sitting above God's law, like the expert here, perhaps making our own rules to live, uh, live by, as most Australians do, 
if we're doing that, we're actually passing judgment on God, as if to say, well, we know better than God when it comes to issues of right or wrong, good and evil, and that's pride. But when we start with God's holiness, His purity, His blamelessness, His righteous and perfect beyond comparison, He is so good. When we start there, we realise, of course He gets to set the standards, and of course the standards are perfection. They're His standards. When we hold ourselves up to the standard of the Good Samaritan, we, we fall short, don't we? I know I do. But if eternal life is at stake, what do we do? What do we do? In this discussion Jesus is having, he's narrowed in on the pride it takes uh, that tries to sit above God's law, because only then, when we humbly admit, I am not good, I am a sinner in God's eyes, I cannot live up to his perfect requirements, it's only then that we can see what was standing right in front of this expert all along. Salvation. Being saved. Right before this man was Jesus, the rescuer, who could bring him to eternal life, because we're not good enough to get there on our own. That's what Jesus came to do. Our first response to this story that Jesus wants us to realise, I think, is how much we need a saviour. God knows we can't live up to his standards, but he loves us, and so he offers us another way. Let me step back and think about it. Jesus really is like the Good Samaritan, isn't he? He selflessly puts all he has on the line. He came to the world to help those who can't help themselves. Those who are beaten, battered and bruised, someone as good as dead. Me and you. He has great compassion, doesn't he? And he paid the highest price for us, his own blood. Jesus really is like the Good Samaritan. He, he is the only one who has lived up to God's standards like this. It's only Jesus who has truly loved his neighbour. Even the people who crucified him, he prayed for. And so the good news is, if we are with Jesus, if we trust him for our forgiveness, he gives us eternal life. We don't earn it. He does it all. He wins it for us. It's good, isn't it? All we have to do to receive eternal life is to trust him. Trust that in his death, we're forgiven. Forgiven for the many times and many ways we fail to love God. And forgiven for the many ways we fail to love others as we should. We get to trust that as we follow Jesus, we get to share in his blamelessness and his righteousness. Isn't that extraordinary? By rights, we're not blameless, but he gives us his righteousness. Which means on Judgment Day, we have absolutely nothing to fear. We're not worried about being judged by God's standards at that point. Jesus has already been judged by God's standards for all our failings. He's already taken that on the cross. And instead, he presents us blameless and pure and right, just like he is. This is the first and most important thing I think we can do uh, in response to this passage today. If you're someone who's new or uh, newish to checking out who Jesus is and, and the claims he makes, uh, we'd love to help you find out more about the promise of eternal life. Just let us know. You'd like to explore these things further. Uh, there's plenty of ways to do that. And there is nothing more important, is there, than finding out more about eternal life. The second thing we can do, though, uh, once we trust Jesus for salvation, is to love like he has loved us. It seems to me that until we know uh, and cherish how much God has loved us, it's, it's, it's not until then that we can really grow in the way we love, radically love our neighbours, like the Good Samaritan here. 
I don't know, this is probably stretching the parable a little bit. But the man in the parable who was mugged, the man who was robbed, he was loved with radical and over-the-top compassion, wasn't he? His life was saved by someone he might have once spat at on the street. How would this change his life? I doubt after this he would have uh, hated Samaritans at very least. If that was you, how would your life change after that sort of moment, being saved like that? I think the point of this parable in some ways is that is you. You have been saved by Jesus. And so I think it is one of the great hallmarks of authenticity of the Christian faith that all through history there are some incredible examples of Christians uh, loving their neighbour, starting hospitals and orphanages, going to the world's most vulnerable to care for them well, selflessly going to great risk. Of course, what's not recorded in the pages of history is the countless ways that individuals, like you and I, there are moments that God provides to us to to love those in extraordinary ways God puts in our path. So as Jesus instructs us here, let's go and do likewise, showing others the same great love that we have been shown, praying even that God would give us opportunities to do this, to love like this. Perhaps I'd like to spend some time thinking about the one or two people uh, that are already in your life you could show some uh, love and radical care to. Perhaps even an enemy. I suspect it will cost us time, it will cost us energy, it will cost us money, even safety perhaps. But what a privilege. What a privilege to be able to show them the same love that we have received. So please join me in prayer as we ask God to help us in these ways. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are perfect. We praise you that you are good all the time. If only we could really fathom the depths of your love and compassion for us, we ask you to help us to do that. Please grow in us and uh, renew our sense of how majestic and holy you are and continue to humble us. Thank you that despite our failings and our own sin, you've uh, reached out at great cost to yourself to bring salvation. Help us always be truly thankful for your son, Jesus. Help us all be profoundly changed by your great love for us. Please help us to be people marked out by compassion and generosity, grace and humility, as your spirit grows us more and more to be like our saviour. And please do give us opportunities and give us courage to love others like you have loved us. Amen.